following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Over the years, I've told you lots of stories about my faith upbringing. If you've been around Artisan for any length of time, you've probably heard one of these stories. And it occurred to me earlier uh, that I should really be clear that, um, for the most part, the uh, faith heritage that I received uh, in my church, and especially in my family, from my parents and all four grandparents, has been an incredible blessing to me. And it's given a depth and a richness to my faith that I wouldn't have had without that foundation. Um, but as you know, if you've heard me talk about it, there's, uh, there's, there's some pieces of it that I've had to kind of emerge from, if you will, and that I've struggled with how to honor while still leaving behind and that kind of thing. And, and most people who are raised in any religious tradition have a similar type of struggle, and uh, it's part of our life of faith. Um, so uh, when I tell stories... Uh, that seem negative, just know that there's so much more positive and, and that it's the negative stuff that, uh, that I tend to have to process more uh, out loud with you. <laughs> so uh, for whatever that's worth, let me tell you about the fact that I was a member of a club in my church growing up called LTL, which stood for Loyal Temperance Legion. Uh, any other fellow LTLers in the room? No, I didn't think so. <laughs> uh, Loyal Temperance Legion, as you can probably imagine was a group for young people, um, middle school and high school, uh, where we would learn about the dangers of uh, not only hard drugs, but of uh, tobacco and alcohol. And, um, you know, if they're feeling especially uh, squirrely, probably caffeine. I don't know. <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a pledge that we all had to take um, and involved committing never to use or give or share or anything, uh, any substances, tobacco, drugs, alcohol. And um, the Loyal Temperance Legion was, uh, was the youth arm of the, the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So these, these are very formidable sounding organizations, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and they are. And, you know, <clears throat> the thing is, I was well into adulthood and, and uh, how shall I say this, had, uh, had left behind some of the commitments of the LTL pledge <laughs> um, before I feel like I actually escaped from some of the um, negativity and toxicity that was connected with that. Right. Let me give you a specific example. I was, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you how old I was the last time this happened to me. But for years afterward, I would, when, anytime I saw anybody a stranger smoking a cigarette, I would assume that person is not a Christian. As if the two things have anything to do with each other. Now, no one ever told me that that's what I should think. No one ever said, if you see someone smoking a cigarette, they're not a Christian. But what they did tell me is that the right way to live out your faith is to avoid tobacco and alcohol and drugs and movies and dancing and Baptists and, you know, <laughs> all kinds of things, you know, some of which are, st- are more dangerous than others, obviously. <laughs> you know, be smart. Don't start with the Baptists. It's like, you know. <laughs> but so you can see what was intended as a particular understanding of personal holiness, personal decisions about how to live your life 
and how to express your devotion to God resulted in something much bigger than that. It resulted in a framework by which I was making judgments about other people's devotion to God without knowing them at all, without knowing whether they had ever even heard of my particular framework, let alone accepted it for themselves. And by the way, all of that stuff had scripture to back it up. It was, it was, I mean, I don't necessarily accept the interpretations at this point, but it was all there. They could all explain it. You know, your body is a temple, so don't do anything to damage it. <clears throat> so that was my story. <laughs> but I bet all of you, regardless of how you were raised, have some version of this, some, some way that you were kind of raised to be judgmental of other people. Some way that your tradition, uh, if it was religious, it might not have been from the particular stream of religion that I came from, which was holiness, evangelical Christianity. Uh, you may have been in a different religious stream, a different, different wing of the Christian church that is, you know, all of us believers. And you had, you kind of were trained to pass judgment on people about other things. Maybe you weren't raised, raised religious at all. I bet you, you still had some of that stuff in your upbringing that caused you to make judgments about certain people for certain reasons, without actually being in relationship with them, uh, without reflecting on how that might um, say more about you than about them, and so on and so forth. So we're continuing our series, uh, in the f- uh, this fall series, using the lectionary. And we're going to talk about judging other people's devotion to God today, uh, as, as well as forgiveness. But um, <clears throat> first things first, we're going to talk about judgment. And uh, we're going to use this passage from Romans that the lectionary assigns us today, which has been so good to us over the past few weeks. And uh, I think that you might find a little bit of a twist, a little variation on the theme that I've been talking about, judging each other based on your religious beliefs. So we'll start out with Romans uh, 14. And if you'd like to follow along, you can turn to the passage with me. In in these red Bibles, it's page 923. Um, I do encourage you to bring your your Bible with you if you have it. So what's going to happen here um, is that Paul's going to continue to talk about uh, how to live together in Christian community. He's going to give us some really good, challenging advice uh, about how to interact with other believers. Uh, So let's read this. I'll read it aloud and you can follow along. Romans 14, uh, 1 through 12. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some people believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Now, vegetarians, (laughs) just just hang with me for a minute. It's not what you think. (laughs) I will explain in a minute. (laughs) Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. And those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, 
Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or why, you, do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each of us will be accountable to God. So, vegetarians, let's talk. Uh, the Christian church in its early days, uh, in Rome in this case, but really throughout the, the um, Mediterranean basin, <laughs> um, existed in this Greco-Roman culture that had, um, it was multicultural, it was pluralistic, m- and many religions. Um, and it was a big part of pagan observance to sacrifice animals in the temples, just as it was a part of Jewish observance to sacrifice animals in their temple. Um, But the early Christians lived in this world where uh, they didn't quite know because the meat that was sold at the market was the product of these sacrifices. So you could go to the market and quite possibly come home with a piece of meat that had been sacrificed to, you know, Zeus or Athena or one of the pantheon gods of the Roman uh, Empire. And... uh, (coughs) Real Bible nerds know that the early church struggled with the fact when Gentiles started to convert to Christianity, which was a sect of Judaism, they didn't quite know how to handle that. Do we have to make them fully Jewish before they can be Christians? And you know that they had a big argument about that, and their decision that they handed down included, uh, basically said, no, we don't have to, they don't have to observe the full Mosaic Jewish law. There's just a few really important things, mostly pertaining to idolatry, that they need to observe. And one of them is, do not eat you know, blood. Do not eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. That's kind of part of the rules of, of the early Christian church. And so, uh, some people interpret the rule this way. Well, I don't know that this meat was sacrificed to idols. I will eat it. Other people interpret the rule as, uh, I don't know that this meat was not sacrificed to idols, so I will only eat vegetables. Right? Now, we can't get away from the fact that Paul says the second position is weaker in some sense than the first. That's something we'll have to deal with. Um, I think most of what he says in this passage overwhelms that sentiment uh, completely. But that's what it's about. It's not like modern-day vegetarians, right? Um, It's not like Paul's saying, you know, all you goofy red fern-eating people are, (laughs) you know, are weaklings, right? Where do you get your protein, man? Um, (laughs) So... That explanation hasn't been given. What I want to do is jump right into this passage, all the way to verse 10, Romans 14.10. This is the, think of it as the centerpiece of the table I want us to gather around this morning. Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Now the Greek just says brother, but it, it means like the people in community with each other. Right? Some translations say brother, some say brother or sister, some say sibling, some say, some say other believers. It's all the same thing. Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So Paul's question is, why are we so judgmental? Why are, he says you. Why are you Christians so judgmental? That's a question that we could ask of ourselves nowadays too, isn't it? Why is it that we are so judgmental? Turns out it's kind of a rhetorical question because he gives the answer right away. What he says is that We all stand before the judgment seat of God. And if you knew that, you wouldn't be judgmental. 
In other words, if you really believe that God was the final judge, not only of other people but of yourself, then you wouldn't judge your siblings in the faith. What I think he's getting at is this reality that I have observed in the world, which is that when we judge other people, and I would put, I am saying we because I do this too, it's not so much for the purpose of pushing them down as for the purpose of lifting ourselves up. So when I see the person smoking a cigarette on the corner, I think that person's not a Christian. I don't smoke cigarettes. I am a Christian. I am lifting myself up. It's not so much about putting that other person down, although there's a byproduct there that you can't get away from. The purpose of being judgmental is to take the focus off of the areas where you fall short and put the focus on the areas where someone else is falling short. And by doing that, you set up the standard of your own device that you get to judge the whole world by. And guess what? Aren't you lucky? (laughs) It just so happens that it works out that the things you struggle with don't get judged and the things that other people struggle with do. And here's the really interesting catch in this text. See, because it's it's the... the, uh, the dogmatic, legalistic, religious, conservative people are an easy target. Fish in a barrel, right? But Paul seems first to be concerned with those who are being judgmental about how permissive they are. Right? It's like there's a, there's a zealotry of open-mindedness that's sometimes just as risky as the zealotry of legalism. Paul's warning is one that we would all do well to heed either way. And some of us come from a position of being more kind of conservative and rule-following, and some come from a tradition of being more permissive and progressive and so forth. There are uh, pitfalls in either direction. But the important thing to remember is that that it's not a contest to see who comes out on top according to any of these human judgments. Living in community with each other, which is what we are struggling to do every day, of our lives as artists and church. Living in community with each other means that we are extending grace in both directions. Even if you believe, as Paul seemed to, that one perspective is inherently weaker than the other. Does this sound familiar to anybody, by the way? This is how we have tried to live out our own tensions in the world recently. The point is that if all of us will be judged by God, comparisons about how we appear to to look, better or worse than others, against any human standard become completely relevant. And if we truly believe that God would be our judge, we would also believe that God would be the only judge of others. Are you picking up what I'm putting down here? It's a failure to allow God to be the judge of other people um, that's indicative of a disbelief that God will be the judge of me. In other words, judgmental people are people who do not believe that they will be judged by God because they've set up their own standards for that judgment. Judgmental people are people who do not believe that they will be judged by God. At the end of the day, they don't believe it. And all of this is wrapped up with the second half of our sermon today, which is forgiveness, which is the, the 
topic of today's gospel reading, which if you were here early enough, you heard me read before the confession. But in case you weren't, and for people who might be listening online, let me summarize the story of Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, comes to him, and he's trying to calculate the right amount of forgiveness to offer people from the community who might sin against him. See, the rabbis of the day had taught that you only needed to seek forgiveness three times. If I uh, commit an offense against you, I have to ask for forgiveness, and I have to ask three times. And if you say no three times, then, you know, my attempt at reconciliation has been satisfied according to the, the teaching of the rabbis. But that, the other side of that rabbinical teaching is that you should always offer forgiveness if it's asked of you, regardless of the number of times, right? But Peter is the type, and you've all met this type of person, Peter's the type of person who needs to turn everything into a math problem. <laughs> right? Come on, humanities people. <laughs> Get behind me here. We're going to go at it. <laughs> you have met so many people who need to turn ethics and faith and philosophy into a math problem. And those, it does not work that way. Peter's saying, so I know that they have to ask three times for forgiveness. How many times do I have to forgive them? Let's say, uh, you know, more than two times as many. What if I said seven times, Jesus? Would that would be pretty? That'd be pretty impressive, right? If I was willing to forgive people three, six, double the, double the amount that they're supposed to ask, and then more, I would say that's pretty good, wouldn't you say so, Jesus? And Jesus is having none of it, and he says, "No, Peter, not seven times, seventy-seven times." Right? Or your translation might say seventy times seven, right? which is like I like. 300 or something. It's like a lot of, a lot of times. <laughs> no. Listen, whether it's 77 times or 490 times, it's a lot of times. It's, a, it's more times than would ever be necessary. It's hyperbole, right? It, the number of times you're supposed to forgive is, is a sideways eight, right? <laughs> infinity. You can't have infinity plus one. That's not a thing, is it? I don't know. Is there some, like, is there some new physics I need to learn now? Oh, I just got done with like Oh, man, quantum theory. I barely understood that. Um, infinity plus one time. Sure, let's go with that. You have to offer forgiveness as many times as it's asked. And if you're trying to get the math right so that you will do just the bare minimum of forgiveness and not any more than that, you have missed the point, haven't you? Right? Peter is, a, once again, an easy target for us. So Jesus says, uh, let me explain it to you with a story, as he so often does. Imagine there's a king who wants to settle accounts with his, his slaves, and the slave, one slave comes to him and owes him a debt of, what was it? 10,000 talents. Or if you read the NIV translation of the Bible, it says 10,000 uh, 10, bags of gold, right? Which is not a very quantitative description. It's a, it's a qualitative description. It's a lot of money. But a talent is 20 years of labor at day laborer wages. So 10,000 talents is how many years of labor, math nerds? 200,000 years of labor, right? It's, again, uh, hyperbole. It's a debt that the slave could never repay. He could work thousands of lifetimes and never do it. And then he uh, is forgiven the debt, and, and he goes out and encounters a fellow slave who owes him a debt of a uh, hundred denarii, or the NIV says, once again, qualitatively, a hundred silver coins, as if that's more descriptive than denarius. Right? A denarius is one day of wages uh, as a laborer 
labor's wages went. So 100 days of labor, which is, I think, if I did the math, I did it like three times. I think it's 7,000 times less than the first slave owed the king. Right? But once again, the math is not the point. It's a forgivable debt, minuscule in comparison to what the, sl- the mercy the slave had received. And he fails to forgive as he had just been forgiven. Do you remember uh, that thing in the Lord's Prayer that says something about that? Forgive us our debts or sins or trespasses. Let's go with debts today because this is a story about debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, that little word as, I love, I love language because a little tiny two-letter word can, uh, the, how you, meet, how you uh, define it can mean a, the difference between a couple different things. Like, if it's forgive us our debts while we're forgiving the debts of our, uh, uh, you know, our debtors, you know, as, as you forgive us, we'll forgive them and it'll probably work out. That's one way to live your life. But I think what as actually means there is forgive us our debts exactly as much as we forgive our debtors. And that is not a comfortable prayer to pray because we're essentially asking God to place a limit on his forgiveness of us in accordance with the amount of forgiveness we are willing to extend to other people. Uh, And uh, with the understanding that there's some theological challenges we'd have to work out with that, I think it's closer to what Jesus is trying to teach us, not only in this parable but elsewhere in his teachings. It seems clear to me that the slave who failed to forgive had not fully grasped the amount of mercy he'd just been shown. And if he did, he had failed to internalize it and accept it enough because it clearly didn't change his life at all. And maybe you've received forgiveness from God and not not, um, quite internalized it or come to accept how complete it is and it hasn't changed your behaviors yet either. See, the slave is in that slippery place between walking free of his own debt, being, not receiving the judgment he should have, but not yet realizing the cost of that for his interactions with other people. And that's a dangerous place to be, that slippery place in between those two understandings. See, in the light of these two rec- uh, readings from the lectionary today, It seems to me that the harshest judgment, the harshest punishment, the harshest words are reserved for people who judge other people harshly. They're reserved for people who fail to forgive, even in the wake of their own forgiveness. See, that that parable that Jesus told had a rather scary ending. Did you notice that when we read it? It came up, we studied this passage in studio last Sunday night, and it came up. (laughs) It came up. Jesus tells the end of the story, and he says, uh, the, when the king finds out that this slave has not forgiven his fellow slave, he hands him over to be tortured until he can repay the debt, which is kind of an absurdity anyway. How do you repay a debt if you're being tortured? Um, and then he says, so my father in heaven will do to all of you if you fail to forgive a brother or sister. Whoa. I thought Jesus was nice. <laughs> but notice that this, this severe punishment that Jesus warns of is not for people who fail to live up to a set of rules, it is specifically for people who flippantly accept God's mercy and then on their way out of the throne room fail the test of extending that mercy to other people. And I think, and I would suggest to you, that it comes from not understanding the depths of God's many mercies. And perhaps if you do understand them, of not being willing to accept that it could possibly be true for you. 
So earlier I said, judgmental people are people who do not believe that they will be judged by God. And I would add this to that now. Unforgiving people are people who do not believe that they have been forgiven by God. And there's two ways that this happens. Some people are unforgiving and they don't, because they don't believe they've been forgiven by God because they don't think they have anything that needs to be forgiven. And other people are unforgiving because they don't believe they've been forgiven by God because they don't think that God could ever forgive them of the things that they've done. And those two people have almost nothing in common except that the result is that they're less likely to forgive others because they can't accept the forgiveness that's been offered to them. Do you remember, all the way back at the start of this series, I think it was August 27th maybe, we started, we dropped into the lectionary, and it was right in the middle of this run through Romans, and it was in Romans chapter 12. Do you remember in the first verse of Romans chapter 12, there's a word that kind of triggered our minds to, to think back a little bit further before we dropped in, right? There's a therefore in the passage, and we always say, what is the therefore, therefore? And the therefore that Paul uses in Romans 12, when he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters is this, in light of God's many mercies, because in chapter 11 he's talking about how everybody has received mercy, the Jews who are under the law of Moses and the Gentiles who are not. And those two groups of people are uh, inclusive of all people, by the way. Um, all of us have received mercy. And Paul says, therefore, because of that fact, in light, in view of God's many mercies, here's how you should act. And then we went out through it for the past few weeks. The first part of Romans 12 talks about don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's the sermon where I shouted a little bit. <laughs> and then the next week was the, the second half of chapter 12 that, that said, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then last week, Kyle Sullivan gave a beautiful homily on uh, Romans chapter 13, talking about how we should not owe any debt to anybody except the debt of everything to everybody, which is the debt of love. It's like good news, don't owe anything to anybody. Woohoo! Except love. Oh. <laughs> and all of this, all of these teachings that we brought to you from the Apostle Paul's book, to the Letter to the Roman Christians, all of it is to be understood in light of God's many mercies to us. See, our unwillingness to forgive people comes from our need constantly to judge other people, which comes from our unwillingness to forgive other people, which comes from our need constantly to judge other people, which comes from our unwillingness. And you see the point. You see what happens. You see the vicious cycle that ensues. Being judgmental and being unforgiving are two sides of the same coin. And I think that this vicious cycle comes from a couple of things which are in tension with each other. And this is where I want to close this morning. This is where I want to land things for you. And I hope that this will inspire you to do some, um, some thought about what steps you need to take in your spiritual work. I think that this vicious cycle of judgment and unforgiveness comes from two ideas which are in tension with each other. In other words, they push and pull on each other and you get one figured out and the other one crops its head up and then you get that figured out and the first one's back at your throat again. Here's the two ideas. The first one is that we are not good at dealing with our own guilt. We are not good at admitting that we are in need of God's forgiveness. 
we are really good at pointing out the ways other people need God's forgiveness, but not so much the way we do. And the second one is that we do not believe that God's mercy is real enough and big enough to work for us because we are so, so depraved. The things that we have done, God surely couldn't forgive. And we go back and forth between these two things. We won't deal with our own guilt at all, or we deal with it so harshly that we think God will not truly forgive us. And understanding both of these ideas at the same time without one of them wiping out the other is um, black, belt, black belt level spirituality. Right? That, is like, that is a balance that's very hard to keep. It's no wonder that Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. See, the road of being judgmental and the road of doing anything you want, anytime you want, for any reason you want, those roads are wide. They're easy to find. You could drive a farm tractor down those roads. But the road of holding these two things in tension, that yes, I am guilty, and yes, God's mercies are new every morning, that road is hard to find. That gate is narrow. By the way, that teaching of Jesus is almost always appropriated by people who um, have a very um, legalistic interpretation of the scriptures. And they say, the road is narrow, and all you people smoking cigarettes ain't on it. <laughs> right? For example. Right. <laughs> but, the, the, but love is the actual narrow path. Humility about our own sin and about being able to accept God's forgiveness that's the narrow path. And the one that you struggle with more probably depends on the messages that you received even as a little child. So if you were to think back on your childhood, on your early days, on the first months or years of your um, life of faith, if you were a person who converted later in life, and even if you're not a religious person at all, some of this will come to bear on you. If you spend some time thinking about the messages you received, were they messages that spoke about how you're not guilty of anything, it's the other people that are the problem? Or were they messages that spoke of how guilty you are that God could not possibly love you? Both of those are lies that we need to undo and unwind. And it's the work of a lifetime. Don't worry that you haven't got it all figured out and finished yet. Because it's the work of a lifetime to unwind those lies and to live in the tension that exists between uh, accepting our guilt and accepting God's forgiveness of it. And if you spend some time considering the messages you've received and how that's played out in your life, I suspect that you... Um, will get some clarity about what it is that you need to do. The spiritual work that you have ahead of you, I think, will become clear at that point. And let me pray for you and for us in that regard. God, we give you thanks um, for this beautiful and challenging teaching about judgment and forgiveness from uh, the Apostle Paul, from your Son, Jesus, our Lord. We pray that you would give us wisdom to apply it to our lives, discernment to know when we have uh, overemphasized one side or the other of this insidious coin, 
We pray that you'd help us to know your um, conviction when we have sinned, when we've fallen short. And we pray that you would help us to know your grace when we confess our sin and when we understand the depths of your love and mercy. And we pray as we grow in our understandings of this tension that we would bring this good news to the world around us, not just in evangelism and witness and words, but by a transformation of our minds and hearts that results in a different type of life, a life that's wholly dedicated to you and to the way of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Faith is a great mystery. And it's expressed in this great mystery of the sacrament of communion. And uh, I could try to explain it forever and come up short. And so I simply want you to know that this is not the table of the church, it's the table of the Lord. It is our privilege to open it to all of you who seek to follow Jesus, to come around his table and to receive the food that he offers. We uh, celebrate communion with intinction, which means you take a piece of the bread, you dip it in the wine or the juice. Please choose the one that would be most appropriate for you and your family. By the way, your kids are welcome to come with you if you'd like them to. If not, please get them right afterwards. And may it be for you the body and blood of the Savior. May it be spiritual food for your hungry souls. And if you would like to receive prayer, a member of our prayer team will be ready for you in just a minute at the back of the room. Our table is open. Let's continue to worship God uh, in all that we do. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.